Welcome to the Farcast, bringing you insight into Wall Street, Washington, and the world. I'm your producer, Harry Jennings, and this week for our Labor Day abbreviated edition, I'm also your host, as Michael is traveling this week. It's been a relatively slow week coming off the holiday with markets drifting lower, but only drifting, and the news out of Washington is relatively sedate. But there's a whole lot simmering just below the surface, and I mean a lot. Uh, we're going to have Jim Urio on with us to give us a rundown on the markets and what he sees on the horizon for September and October, which traditionally have been the hardest months on the market. But first, we'll turn to Washington and to help us understand what's going to go off the boil and what was going to remain simmering on the back burner, we go to Dan Mahaffey, Senior VP from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress, noted China expert, published author, also known as the Georgetown Bruiser, and Senior Political Analyst for the Farcast. Glad you could join us today, Dan. Uh, how are things going with you? Doing well, Harry. Excited to hear whatever new nickname you found uh, for me uh, <laughs> circulating there. But yeah, no, it's been quiet in Washington to a sense. The The Senate has returned, so you know they're not a noisy crowd, as it were. But uh, look, a lot of attention on the health of senators as we spoke last week. Of course, Mitch McConnell. Also, there's been talked to with Diane Feinstein and now the, the case over her uh, uh, power of attorney and, you know, the question of are these people there? But yeah, no, the the Senator uh, McConnell was very clear about his health and that he's not going anywhere. And we talked about this last week because he's the bulwark for many of these national security Republicans and I think others in the Senate uh Lindsey Graham and others, and, and this is teeing up what I think is going to be the big fight over the next few weeks, is, look, there is certainly plenty of Republican-Democrat tension to go around. The, the mm -hmm. House is practically ready to impeach, him by, uh, impeach Biden at this point, but the tensions between Senate and House Republicans on spending and national security priorities and the prospects, the very real prospects of a government shutdown at the end of the month, Senate Republicans find themselves just, uh, most of them, besides themselves, with how the House is handling some of these things. The culture war stuff, the, uh, look, now the Senate has a bit of its own glass house, no pun intended, with Tuberville's mm -hmm. blockade on military nominations. Uh, but the the ultimate question here is, can they get these, these spending packages through? And frankly, the, the Senate is trying to move in a way that says to the House, you're going to have to cut some of these uh, more outlandish uh, requests from this, or you're going to have to accept some level of Ukraine assistance on this that the both uh, Senate Republicans and the administration want. It, is there is there not much noise coming out of the Senate, or is it just that everything out of the House is deafening? Uh, it does <laughs> That's seem a good to be way like of putting it. Yeah, no, and I think that what you have coming out of the House is a sense of look, the Senate has a mindset on both sides, again, over this military nomination blockade. I'll set that aside. But by and large, uh, an attitude much towards uh, governance. Uh, the House mentality right now is a lot more about uh, what is this brinksmanship and what is the leverage that I can use? And you even have some very conservative senators uh, poo-pooing the House strategy of pursuing a shutdown. Um because ultimately, they they see that Republicans don't win the spending issue when they force a government shutdown. It, it hasn't mm -hmm. worked yet. Um, but uh, when you are in a in a in a world of conservative ideologies, you know, much like the some on their left are in their own ideologies when it comes mm -hmm. to other things, 
uh, the the sacrosanctity of pursuing a government shutdown is is greater than actually uh, running the government or having the strong military, et cetera, et cetera. From my view in the peanut gallery, it seems like Congress basically has one job in the next 23 days between now and uh, September 30th, and that's keep the government open. Any chance? Oh, look, I think it's very low. I would say it's it's 10%. And then the senators are going to remind you, Harry, that yes, that may be the primary job just to get those spending bills through or some kind of continuing resolution, because at least if they can get a deal by the end of the year, we don't have the automatic 1% cuts across mm-hmm. the entire budget. That's the mm-hmm. other you know sword hanging over. Again, negotiating with some of these uh, more far right members, they would say, well, you know, the the benefit is the cleaver. That's part of the cure. So that that you know they're not too worried about that compared to others though who would say, look, uh, across the board, one percent cut to defense right now. It's the wrong time to be doing that. Strange to me politically that we we're still pursuing this this brinksmanship. And how long ago was it? Twenty six years, twenty eight years, when uh, there was a government shutdown in the nineties, and Phil Graham chortled, uh, "Do you miss your federal government lately?" and Pretty much the country said, yeah, hell yeah. Uh, this 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 brinksmanship just has never worked for the Republicans. They're almost acting like Democrats, who the Democrats for 100 years uh, have been the party of, well, it didn't work last time. Let's do it again. And well, it's, uh, it seems like the Republicans our, are doing that. Many of my good Republican friends right now across the board find themselves trapped in an in a environment where what wins them their primary loses them their general election. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that was a lot of what's gone on in the uh, in the Democratic Party over the years. But the you know also the the great Will Rogers line: uh, "I don't uh, I don't belong to an organized political party. I'm a Democrat." Yeah. Uh, it seems like that has sort of infected the the Republicans now. With uh, yeah, like you say in the House, the the fiscal conservatives after Jeb Hensarling has uh, retired, I can't think of a fiscal conservative off the top of my head. Now you know I'm peanut no, gallery. And, and I'm, I'm not involved in it the way that you are. But uh, they're they're radicals in the in the House, but the true fiscal conservatives agree with them or don't. I you know they're they're kind of lost in the in the noise. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna say two things here. One, the fiscal conservatism or, or fiscal prudence hasn't left this town, but many of them have packed their bags. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a few who who are consistent on it, but look, there are two elements i would say of fiscal prudence we need to keep in mind one is of course the the ins and outs the debt deficits one and that's a longer term question where i think both parties have been asleep at the switch and we need to have a a longer term conversation and there's Mm going to be cuts and people are going to have to pay more that's just it's the basic math of it and it's like going on a diet it's hard it's unpleasant but it takes time but the other part of it though less move more yeah uh, yeah same same thing uh, revolutionary diet plan eat less Mm -hmm. move more on the other hand, though, the uh, fiscal prudence also dictates that when you are in government, you're using the money well, you're not shutting down government, you're not doing continuing resolutions that keep zombie programs going. There's all these things that lead to the budget brinksmanship that actually make your tax dollars get used far poorly than <laughs> they would if a government was running better. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, if things were running on time, if these appropriations were being done thoughtfully and carefully, look, you could have, again, there's there's two sides of this coin of fiscal prudence, and one is being lost in all this brinksmanship around 
and you know under a halo of uh, of prudence. The other part of it too is that there's these other factors you have that are that are caught in this logjam. We've talked about FAA renewals. We've talked about farm bills. Uh, I don't forget if surface transportation is due up as well. You also have uh, the foreign intelligence courts. So your uh, mm -hmm. supervision of our uh, spying programs. All of this is actually being caught up in this logjam, along with the the regular defense bills and other stuff uh, that you just have. You're not running your government well when you're doing this brinksmanship. And if that's a the a gong I've been banging now for the past eight years, I'll, I'll bang it again. But it, you see it now, and I think you'll see it even become more acute uh, on this personnel side with the military, because with Tuberville coming up, looking ahead, uh, you're actually going to have the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff position become vacant mm -hmm. uh, and unfilled because of this blockade. Among uh, certain members of the of the Republican Party who are very adamant on this abortion policy issue and this cultural issue, I get it, I understand it, uh, but the optics soon of having our military's highest position unfilled because of this blockade uh, are going to become more visible. Look, it's politics, and and many of these people are, uh, I'll say, they're far more convinced about the next world than this one, and that makes them uh, <laughs> a little difficult to negotiate with, but uh, this is having a major impact on our real-world military readiness. I, I want to get into that a little bit more next week. Uh, Jim Labenthal is going to be with us, and uh, for those of you who don't know, Jim Labenthal uh, was a, a, an officer in the United States Navy. I think that he can really uh, have a discussion with you that really brings some insight into that. Because part of it is, uh, you know, I grew up in a military family. I, you know, I, I'm close to politics. I watch things, and I don't fully understand how one person uh, that he's uh, that he's holding up the entire system. Uh, so we'll we'll get into that more uh, next week. The other senator that I want to talk about uh, is Mitch McConnell. Fine, nothing to see here. Does that track? And why can't he just resign and another uh, another Republican uh, take over, have John Thune or John Cornyn take over? And my understanding is that the governor of Kentucky is restricted in how he can mm -hmm. appoint that seat, which I don't fully understand. But if you could give us some insight into that, what what would motivate Mitch to kind of stay in the seat? Why not just go home, put your feet up on the porch? Yeah, uh, après moi le deluge is part of it the uh you know who comes next who is in leadership how does he keep this caucus together and, and how does he again continue to lead you know something that he's done for his life he's been a u.s senator harry longer than i've been a human living being <laughs> so part of it is there's a question of he might not know what else to do yeah. frankly in some ways mm -hmm. you have to get down to that too uh, look, you are you feel for him and you feel for his legacy when you see these moments he's had. Uh, others will say they are, you know, they're they're transient. They don't affect his day to day functioning. Uh, they might happen during moments of of public stress, but you know, to be fair, by the historical standards of the health of the U.S. Senate, he's actually not that bad compared mm -hmm. to other cases we've had too. So there's. Ultimately, the, the political, the personal, and some very tough private decisions are all uh, wedded around this. And I think the political part of it is, one, he wants to to hold on to his position of leadership, because I think, as you, as you point out about the governor of Kentucky's uh, rules, it's less about that political partisan balance in the Senate, to get a little bit of inside baseball here. 
uh, Kentucky having a Democratic governor and a Republican legislature. Uh, the Republicans in that state have passed laws that limit the governor's ability to uh, replace a Senate vacancy, similar to how it would be done in other states or or sold in Illinois. Um, and the uh, <laughs> process in uh, in Kentucky now, in the in the good Commonwealth of the Bluegrass State, is that the legislature has a list of people of the same party that the governor can then choose from. Uh, of course, should this ever, you know, actually be tested, there might be some legal challenges, or mm -hmm. the governor could may pick whoever he chooses and and tell the legislature to pound sand. I don't know, but uh, you could have a a question there. But I think this is less about the partisan balance in the Senate and more about certainly his career and legacy as a leader and and what he sees he needs to do to manage the Senate through the crises, domestic and international, that we are in now. I'm sure we're going to be talking about that more in the next couple of weeks. Uh, the you, One of the concerns that I have uh, is breaking the logjam with the House. If, if McConnell is, in fact, hampered in any way, even if it's just uh, uh, like uh, uh, John Fetterman, his almost inability to speak, even though he was clearly thinking well uh, before he had his depressive episode, but he so because he was just so almost unable to to speak properly, that's a big part of negotiation is just you know being able to convince people around the table, and I'm I'm worried about that that uh, that McConnell won't be able to be the force to break the uh, to break a log jam. So yeah, we'll no, you'll hear you'll that. hear a few more. Look, there's been some barbs thrown. Uh, Josh Hawley, Rand Paul, those others who clearly have no love lost for Mitch McConnell and want mm -hmm. a far more uh, far further right Senate. Uh, Dan, we're just about out of time and just wrapping up, watching uh, watching the legal proceedings that have gone on this week. Have we learned anything? Have we learned anything that has any impact on policy, politics, or is it its own melodrama that the rest of the world can kind of ignore right now? Look, it's a melodrama that is right now making, again, that, that paradox I spoke about for Republicans. It's making Trump more popular in the primary and more unpopular in the general election. It's mm -hmm. just another, it's another item on that list. Uh, but it is largely a legal melodrama. And it just reminds me, thank goodness that I did not end up in a world where I have to understand the state of Georgia court and criminal procedure. <laughs> Someone who does a little bit, and my brother is an attorney in the state of Georgia, had some very interesting conversations over text this week, I can tell you that. We'll be back with Dan uh, next week uh, to go into uh, more detail on different things. But uh, this week coming up, we've got Jim Urio. He's going to talk to us about the markets here on this special abbreviated Labor Day week edition of the Farcast. Please stay with us. Michael Farr and the Farcast are proud to support Heroes, Inc. Heroes supports the spouses and children of law enforcement officers and firefighters who gave their lives in the line of duty to the greater Washington, D.C. community. Their singular goal is to honor the supreme sacrifice made by these individuals by caring for their families. Heroes' work begins within 24 hours of the tragic loss and continues indefinitely. We invite you to learn more about Heroes' mission at heroes.org. We hope that you will consider supporting Heroes as they endeavor to honor those who protect us. That's heroes.org. Heroes, here for you, here for good. And now, back to the Farcast and your host, Michael Farr.
We hope you're enjoying this week's edition of the Farcast. Please share us with friends and colleagues. Welcome back to the Farcast. This is Harry Jennings, pinch hitting for Michael Farr this week. Great segment there with uh, with Dan Mahaffey. And as promised, we're going to Jim Urio. Again, uh, talking with Dan and, uh, and what's going on in Washington, uh, I thought a, a lot of things are sort of simmering. Nothing's quite on the boil yet. Uh, and I kind of think that's the way the market is as well. We're drifting lower, but just drifting. So to uh, to go into what the markets are are doing and what he thinks September is looking like, welcome, uh, Jim Murio. How are you doing today? Good. Thanks for having me, Harry. I, I, I think it's really interesting the way you described it as a simmer waiting for something. So let's think of it this way, is that if this was eight months ago, we all knew the Fed was in a tightening cycle. That part of the equation was relatively settled. We didn't know when it was going to end, but we knew it was going on. So now we don't know if it's going on anymore. I mean, Fed funds uh, futures rates are saying uh, absolutely no. Well, 93% no hike at September 20th meeting, but they are saying there's a chance for a hike at the November meeting, which I find interesting. But the fact, the fact is that this is an inflection point. And the fundamental story is an inflection point because we don't know if the Fed's going to continue or not. And the technical story, and a lot of, we talk about technical analysis a lot on this show. And I think to some of the, the listeners, they might think it's some sort of voodoo, like lines on a chart. It really isn't. It's like the momentum and the feel and what people are, are, uh, are, are portraying in the market. So both things are in this influx, but there is an end in sight. September 13th is a CPI number that's enormous. Um, it, the belief right now is that inflation is coming down and that the other numbers are holding in somewhat good. I, I kind of challenged that with the last, the uh, August 30th GDP number, which I thought was you know worse than expected. And then the labor numbers on the 1st of September looked mm-hmm. good in the headline, but then every other month has been revised lower, including June being revised from, I'm getting, might get these numbers not exactly right, but like a 210 jobs created to now has been revised down twice to 105. So the labor um, mm-hmm. picture is deteriorating with me too. None of this matters though, until we see the CPI. CPI, we're looking for 3.6, which is up significantly from the 3.2 we saw last read. But if that if it comes in lower than that, I think that could be the push that starts to move this market higher. But, and stop, I'm sorry if I'm rambling. You know how excited I get about this stuff, Eric. But I think there is a blueprint if you look at the technical analysis that will that will support fundamental. And I think if we can get back above 45.50 in the S&P futures, two different weeks in the last four, that was essentially the high and then it turned around. We get back above that level, and I think the, the bull run we've had is going to be still intact. Is there a level below which, if, if we drop, that the, the bottom could fall out? So if there isn't a leg up, is there, is there a trigger maybe for a leg down as well? Yes. Yes, I do believe there is. And where I put it is, is the low of last week. Uh, the mm-hmm. end of last week, the low. And I think that's about, uh, this is, I'm ballparking it. I think I'll go on my Twitter and post what it is exactly. But I think it's about 44.30, 44.20, a settlement below there that I think that we, that it could go, it swing the other way. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, indecision has to be solved in a direction. I think we're at almost perfect indecision right now, but that's what I'm looking for. It's interesting that you mentioned the CPI number, because one of the things uh, when uh, Dr. Jeff Lacker was on the show, I think three weeks ago now, he mentioned that the last couple of months, inflation has come in soft-ish to the point that that we can really start talking about the soft landing. And and uh, that was very different from what uh, Jeff Lacker has been saying. He's been very hawkish and very, 
not insistent, but sort of resigned to the fact that we're going to have a a recession. And I think I think that that's something else that a lot of people think the Hawks are. Oh, we've got to have a recession. I I don't think that's the case. It's just a resignation that that's probably going to happen in order to get inflation under control. Had a conversation with Dr. Jay Bryson uh, from Wells Fargo last week uh, off air, and he was saying the same thing, that these last couple of months, they might be fluky reads. But if they if they are confirmed that that soft landing might actually happen. And of course, you know, Goldman Sachs is now saying 15% chance of recession, which for my money, that just means that's background noise. There's a 15% chance that you could go into of anything in any year. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt about it. I can't say that I'm there yet, particularly when I just I mentioned those labor numbers before, and it seems like the labor mm-hmm. market is deteriorating to a certain extent. And the inflation piece of the puzzle being completely gone, I'll cite two things that worry me. One, um, you, you look at these big union contracts being negotiated mm-hmm. for pay increases to match inflation, because then we haven't really stepped into that dreaded wage price spiral. But that worries me that we will. The fact mm-hmm. that input costs have gone, particularly crude oil. Um, by the way, electricity, I believe, is up like 40 percent to 60 percent over the last two years. And people don't talk about electricity very much because it's still relatively cheap. Mm-hmm. Electricity is higher. Crude's not relatively cheap. So if those input costs start to fuel into um, inflation and then throw in a little bit of the base effect, the fact that when those those last two numbers we had that were relatively low year over year, both were um, juxtaposed against those ridiculous highs from the year before. Mm-hmm. So that's why one of the reasons that this month is going to be supposedly the first uptick year over year when we get what's expected to be a 3.6 read on the 13th. Wanted to, to ask you a little bit, shifting gears a little bit, about, about seasonality in the markets. Uh, you know, used to be that big guys on the desks would go away and go to the Hamptons or the Berkshires or the Poconos or wherever they would go. Uh, and uh, the desks would be manned by interns and, and junior reps. And they had, they had stops and limits, and, but they were always pretty far off. Of the, they'd be far off of the number the market wouldn't have any conviction about anything that it would do. Now that that we have instantaneous communication, do you have that same sort of seasonality? And when the big guys come back and are actually at their desks in September, does the internals of the market really matter, really change substantially the way that they did uh, you know, when we were kids? So I don't think so. I think, you know, the, first of all, the notion of sell in May and go away, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it was a, a fairly reliable axiom until recently. And I, by the way, until you just said the technology, I didn't know why it was changing, but I did know that it was changing. But actually, that's probably a really interesting insight to it. It's hmm. technology keeps everyone plugged in. Now, the fact that August and September are, are historically the weakest month. Now, I do think the months that are, are, are particularly viewed as being weak, because that can kind of be a self-fulfilling prophecy. Prophecy. Every time we see some weakness, people are like, oh, it's August, it's September, we're supposed to sell it. <laughs> so that may not, may not matter that uh-huh. um, people aren't at the desk. And I do believe in it. And I, it's not high on my list of trading, but I am uh, pretty solidly hedged to the downside, as I have been um, since that high we put in back in, I think, mid-July, and then we reversed it pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. So I, I played that downside pretty good, and I've just kind of been playing the range until we bump out of it. Mm-hmm. Now, as a long-term investor, does that, uh, and, and you know, taking off your trading hat for a second, putting on your long-term investor hat, does does that seasonality really matter? Is it uh, is it just, you know, 
around the edges, maybe if you've got a little bit of cash, hang on to it for a few weeks just to see if you get a better entry point, but don't worry about it. Uh, or is there, uh, uh, does that, does that matter to the long-term investor at all? I don't think it should. I think that you know, there's just too many uh, tax implications of trying to swap in and out of stuff. There's just, it, to me, it doesn't make sense. What mm -hmm. does make sense is periodic um, rebalancing to match your risk tolerance. Mm -hmm. And if you want to, you know, I personally do it, and I'm talking about in my investment accounts, because I, you know, I trade actively every day and I have certain accounts that I trade that actually, but certain accounts that I manage as investment, just like mm -hmm. your listeners probably do. And those, I think it's smart to have a, every six months or every year um, rule of thumb that you rebalance to your risk tolerance or after big moves. If the, if the stock market just broke 20% and even intra-month, you're mm -hmm. like, well, now, you know, this is, I have less stocks than I normally do. That's a spot to buy stocks. And I've been doing that with relatively good success in my investment accounts for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. Actually moving along here and uh, not much time left, but actually that, that segues into the sort of the last question that I wanted to have for you. I know you don't give give advice, but you, you know, you do talk about what you do and, and why it, uh, why it works. One of the things with bonds now with fixed income paying, you know, substantially more, you know, paying a real, a real rate of return now. And as we all age and we talk about allocations, the, the allocation that's appropriate for, for someone at 55 is different from the, the, uh, I say we all age. I'm not sure that you age, um, but, uh, <laughs> Uh, just for argument's sake, we're, we're going to say that you're actually getting older, Jim, that as we get older and talking about allocations, um, your, your risk profile changes, you know, if you're 55, it's going to be different than 45, what your risk in your equity profile is duration in your bonds, but also your mix of, uh, bonds and equities. And, and now that we have real yields in the bond market, uh, is that as you're looking at your allocations, have you changed the way that you're thinking about bonds and changing the way that you're managing allocation? No doubt about it. Something that, that's interesting, and as you're asking the question, it dawned on me, is that over like the last 10 or 15 years, this concept arose from these talking heads on TV. Like not, of course, not talking heads like Michael and I, we're the, we're the smart ones, but <laughs> of the, the notion of cash on the sidelines. And everyone was waiting for when this cash on the sidelines is going to come into the equity markets and push it higher again. And now people, I heard even people a couple of months ago said, well, there's a lot of cash on the sidelines. That cash on the sidelines happy as hell getting uh, five plus percent uh -huh. in a three month bill and rolling it over every three months. So the, the question is, uh, should that change your thinking? Yes, of course it should. And you said real yields. And I think when you said real yields, you meant like, like real gen, I mean, a, a big yields compared to historically, but actually the, the concept of real yields which is like the yield on the treasury versus you know, inflation expectations for the next uh -huh. 10 years. That's a pretty nice profile. You uh -huh. know what I mean? If inflation expectations are two and a half percent over the next 10 years, when you can earn 4.3% in your tenure, that is a very, very valid investment strategy. So does that change? It changes my thinking. I'm close to 60 years old and I'm looking for, you know, solid, like I have, you know, I'm starting to look at treasuries all along the curve to kind of layer them in, ladder them in and actually collect real money, like you said. Mm -hmm. So, yes. I think a lot of people are who, have, you know, who are 50, uh, 50, 55 years old for 15 years, there hasn't been anything that you can get in the bond market. And when they were 25, you didn't think about bonds. Uh, exactly. Why, why would you at 25? You've got yeah. you've got yeah. plenty of time. So I think it's there are different questions that are people people, I think, need to be asking now. So 
folks that's it for this uh for this uh short forecast uh jim thanks for being with us and bearing with our uh, uh bearing with our technical issues which i'll delete out but there 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 was some very interesting language from me from uh from a couple <laughs> of uh, technical glitches that we had folks but we fight through them and we bring this to you Thanks for being with us on the Farcast. We'll be back with you next week with guest host Jim Labenthal, and we'll begin season seven soon. Thanks for being with us. Bye. Farm Miller in Washington is a group comprised of investment professionals registered with Hightower Advisors, LLC, and SEC Registered Investment Advisor. Some investment professionals may also be registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. All information referenced herein is from sources believed to be reliable. Farm Miller and Washington and Hightower Advisors, LLC have not independently verified the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Farm Miller and Washington and Hightower Advisors, LLC and any of its affiliates make no representations or warranties expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the information or for statements or errors or omissions or results obtained from the use of this information. Farm Miller and Washington and Hightower Advisors, LLC and any of its affiliates assume no liability for any action made or taken in reliance on or relating in any way to the information. This podcast and the materials contained herein were created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the authors and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates. Farm Miller in Washington and Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented in any way to any entity as tax or legal advice. Clients are urged to consult their tax and or legal advisors for related questions.